This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener, when you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Space Entrepreneurs and part two of my interview with Dr. Nadie Brady about brain diseases caused by poisons. But first up, here's the news. Mobile supercomputers. Phone manufacturer HTC has unleashed their Power to Give program to make use of your phone's unused computing power while you sleep. You simply download the Power to Give Android app from the Google Play Store, and when you recharge your phone at night, the app connects to the internet over your home Wi-Fi and shares its number-crunching power to do calculations that contribute to research, such as cures for cancer, Alzheimer's disease, new materials for water filters in the developing world, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The project is in beta, so HTC is still adding research projects in collaboration with Dr. David Anderson, inventor of the shared computing initiative BOINC software at the University of California, Berkeley. BOINC is used by the World Community Grid to collect spare CPU cycles to create a giant, distributed supercomputer from volunteers' desktops, tablets, and phones. One million HTC One Android phones running the app will provide a petaflop of computing power, or the equivalent of an elite supercomputer. A flop is a floating point operation, a kind of basic calculation. A petaflop is 10 to the power of 15 calculations every second. Connecting all these phone CPUs from volunteers will allow researchers to crunch really big data sets more quickly for free. Nearly 800 million Android phones were sold in 2013, so the potential is huge. The first such programs were screensavers on desktop computers running SETI at home in 1999. The World Community Grid has 2.5 million devices at the moment and 16 completed projects, with 6 active projects. The software on worldcommunitygrid.org runs on Windows, OS X, Linux, and Android. And now, space entrepreneurs. Last week, Orbit Oz had its first monthly meetup for people interested in new Australian space startup businesses. Brian Lim is the organizer of Orbit Oz, and he's building his own space startup called Launchbox. That's Launchbox, not Lunchbox. He spoke to me at the first meeting of Orbit Oz, and I began by asking him how he got into the space biz. So this is a, a really like Aussie story. I went into the startup scene a couple years ago, and I was actually struggling and suffering at it, and 
I was one day having beers with friends and I'm going, oh, it doesn't work, my business is not going anywhere. And then, you know, and then my friends in a piece of, a, of wisdom said, do what you love. What do you love? I drank my beer, boom. Anyway, space. And the whole room cackled a lot because nobody thinks it's possible. But there was epiphany. I actually wanted to do it. So I actually decided to apply for the International Space University when I found it. it and I graduated in February 2012. And I've been on a rampage ever since, figuring out how the space industry works, building the connections and networks to make it happen. And Launchbox, what is it going to do? Launchbox is to teach kids in schools how to build, launch and retrieve their own satellite. And how far along are you? We are a couple of months in. We already finished the first prototype. We're going through the second prototypes right now. Um, and we are designing it to match the curriculum right now. And what sort of satellites will the children be building? Well, they're going to build small pseudo-satellites that you can launch by weather balloon. They can go up. And there'll be a tracker so they can, when it drops, they can pick it up and collect it again. Once they collect it, they can take the data out and see all the photos, look at temperature, humidity and weather. Uh, and they'll be able to learn all the science beyond how to launch, retrieve and all the policies and how to make it work. What's the size of these small pseudo-satellites? So we're targeting them to be the same as a CubeSat, so 10 by 10 by 10 centimetres, so all 1,000 centimetres cube. And what sort of thing? So they're going to take photos and have a GPS? Yes. So how much interest have you gathered in Launchbox? There's eventually been a lot of interest. We were speaking to somewhere in the realm of 40 to 50 schools, determining where, where their interest lies. And there's a lot of interest. In fact, we got interest out of CSIRO. We were featured in the scientists and mathematicians in schools convention in South Australia. And we got a lot of good feedback from that. And your convener for Orbit Oz which is other space entrepreneurs. So what else are Australians doing in the space entrepreneurial space? In Orbit Oz today, I would say there are actually three space startup companies in the room. There's my own, Jason, who was the speakers of Sabre Astro, and two other guys, Christopher and Sebastian, who run a startup called Forerunner Space. Now, that we are building it, and we are looking for everybody else who wants to be involved. And while I can't say everybody who's in the room who's doing stuff, they were here, they were there, they were thinking, and they were learning. And the rest are coming. About how many people would you say were here today? Oh, I would easily say there was 40 to 50 people who came. So there's a lot of interest. Yes. I didn't like put it on any press. I just say, hey guys, I'm going to do this, see what happens. And I got 50 people showing up. So if listeners want to follow Orbit Oz and Launchbox, where should they look online? All right. To follow Launchbox, please go to www.launchbox.net.au. If you want to follow Orbit Oz, it is www.meetup.com slash Orbit Oz. The space industry in Australia is new from a commercial perspective, but I am 100% certain that we're about to go ballistic in our opportunities here. And it would be a shame if people weren't ready to take up that opportunity. Brian Lim, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. That was Brian Lim. You can find out more about Orbit Oz at meetup.com slash Orbit Oz and Launchbox at launchbox.net.au. Next up, Jason Held was the guest speaker at Orbit Oz. Jason is the director of Sabre Astronautics, a space engineering company out of Sydney, New South Wales and Austin, Texas. I began by asking Jason how long Sabre Astronautics has been going. 
We've been going in one fashion or another since 2007. The U.S. one was formed uh, at first, and then, Sa then Sabre in Australia was formed in 2008. You spoke about all sorts of interesting things tonight, and one of the things people would least expect, I think, was the space beer. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. We do a lot of real thick research in artificial intelligence applied to space operations and really breaking some barriers there. But the moment I mentioned space beer, nobody actually remembers what I do for a living. But no, we partnered with the Four Pines Brewing Company to make the first beer designed for drinking in space. We parabolic flight tested it for the first time in 2011. A few months ago, we flight tested and validated the world's first space beer bottle. So you could actually drink a beer in zero G and, and have it look like you're drinking a beer rather than a colostomy bag, which is, yeah, nobody wants to do that. And yeah, it's one of those fun projects which has spun off really nicely, uh, makes a bit of money for us. So we say the, the, the more beer you drink, the better our research gets. And we all love it. It's a lot of fun. And if people want to look for space beer, you're actually selling it. Yeah, it, 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 we're selling it in about 360 uh, shops around the country right now. Uh, Australia is, is, is looking really good. We're looking at setting up shop in the U.S. Uh, maybe in a few months. We'll see how it goes. But, you know, Woolies will stock it. The major distributors will, will stock it. And you get your, the beer pretty much uh, just look for the Four Pine Stout is really what you're getting. And what are some of the challenges in drinking beer in zero gravity? There's challenges in logistics, like how do you get it out of the bottle because you can't pour in zero, in zero G. There's no down, right? So we had to design a special insert that will wick the beer from the bottom of the bottle up to the neck. Very similar sort of technology that you would need with a fuel tank. So we just call it a fuel tank of love, you know, that way. So it's a bit of fun. But the actual drinking it, itself is interesting because there's been no formal studies on alcohol absorption in space before us. So, uh, you know, we, we get to tackle that research first. Very important research, you know, very difficult to drink the beer and, and see how you feel and take a breathalyzer. It's brilliant because there's going to be a whole market in space tourists. Yeah, look, I mean, the, the, the real market is here on Earth. You know, there, there's, there's you know, uh, billions of people on, on Earth. Space tourism is ramping up. We're going to have hundreds there. But as far as a business model, naturally, we sell it on Earth. But what we're really trying to do is bring the things that we have here on Earth that we love and bring it up into space. Because at the end of the day, you know, astronauts go to space and we see them like these... We almost treat them like gods sometimes. We put them on a pedestal. And it's really ridiculous. You meet them, you talk to them, and they're just like us. They want to go up. They want to explore. They, they want to you know, see the world through the bottom of the glass, I think is an expression I hear a few times from friends. And that's what we're really trying to, to make them do, make space as comfortable as we can. And with your logistics and, and other space operations outside of the beer, you're using computer game graphics-inspired ideas for getting information to people to reduce training and to make it easier to actually operate things. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. This is one of those things that uh, guys like, like NASA, as, as good as they are in other areas, uh, have lagged behind at least 10 to 15 years from the rest of the industry. So they get a lot of information. Their approach is you got to put everything on the screen, which means you need multiple screens because spacecraft are becoming more complicated over time. What we've realized is by using video game technology, it's much easier to encapsulate large complex sets of information into ways which are more easily and quickly understood by the operators. So we're looking at it as ways of uh, real rich space situational awareness, right? So you, you can see if a solar flare happens and you can see where your spacecraft is and, and, and infer what the effects would be.
And you're also using artificial intelligence. Yeah. So once you have the data, and it's one thing to see what happens, the next question is why. So if you, if you think what could happen if a solar flare hits a satellite, radiation, protons, electrons, alpha particles, charges the spacecraft structure, uh, does all sorts of things to the electronics. If you think out about just putting a magnet in front of your computer, it's a very bad thing to do. Definitely don't do this at home, kids. But that's what happens in space all the time in ambient radiation. You get a solar flare, it's far worse. It could, it could really damage your spacecraft. So we're using space data here on Earth all the time. Uh, we're using it for television, for radio, for com various communications, for imagery. And if the satellite goes down, there's millions of dollars that's, that's affected in the downstream. Right? So we're using artificial intelligence to understand what's happening in space and correlating it to the effects that it could happen in the spacecraft. And by understanding this information, we could, the operators can make really uh, informed decisions very rapidly. And you've got a tethering system to be, to be environmentally conscious, to be responsible with the, with the satellites when you're done with them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's to be environmentally conscious, but it also has a very direct dollar value benefit as well because what happens is people launch a satellite and it's in orbit, it stays there. You want it to stay there. You don't want it going anywhere. It's flying at eight kilometers a second. So if, if the satellite has a problem and it can't do its mission, what do you do with it? Well, it becomes a danger. It becomes a hazard to other very expensive spacecraft. So what we're seeing is there are a lot of startup space companies out there that are sending their satellites out there. And if they die, it could be a, it could be a hazard or big risk. So you, a small satellite is very inexpensive. The larger satellite's 150 million, you know, $500 million and you could be uh, at the back end of a, of a very obnoxious uh, lawsuit. So a very practical purpose for, for, for getting the satellite out of, out of space is with this tether deployer. So the space tether looks like a yo-yo. That's how it's shaped. And you've got two parts to it, one which connects with the satellite, the other which unrolls a conductive tether. And at the end of the satellite's life, you hit a command and it releases the yo-yo the, the shape, unrolls the whole tether. The line is conductive, which means that if you're passing through Earth's magnetic field, it would collect a charge, and that charge will create a force called a Lorentz force, which will pull the satellite down to, to Earth where it burns up and is out of everyone's way. That's how it works. People want to follow you online. Where should they look for you? www.saberastro.com, or we have a Facebook site, Saber Astro, where we'll, we'll, we'll put all of our experiments out there. All i got to say is it's, it's a great industry to be in. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we, we're, we're trying to shake it up here in Australia as much as we can because I think Australia is the type of country which has the capability to do this, this, these sorts of jobs if they want to. Well, Jason Held, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Ian. That was Dr. Jason Held, director of the Sabre Astronautics Space Engineering Company, speaking with me about space beer, self-destructing satellites and the business of space. Did you like the new sponsorship promotion at the beginning of the show? audibletrial.com slash science for your free 30-day trial and free audiobook from over 150,000 titles. For upgrading your brain, Harry Lorraine's memory books have helped me through my degree and still help me remember. You could download Harry Lorraine's Improve Your Memory for free by going to audibletrial.com slash science. Narrated by Harry Lorraine himself. Harry Lorraine knows memory systems. He performed a memory act on stage where he greeted all his audience as they entered the theatre, got them to stand up, and then he'd name them one by one and allow them to sit down. Nobody was left standing at the end. 
Support Diffusion and download your free book from audibletrial.com science. That's audibletrial.com science for your free audiobook of choice. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr. Nady Brady is studying substances that reverse ageing and investigating the contribution of toxins to neurological diseases like Alzheimer's disease, ALS and ciguatera fish poisoning. Ciguatera causes debilitating neurological symptoms in people who've eaten contaminated tropical fish. The New Caledonian traditional herb remedy for ciguatera fish poisoning, octopus bush, is the only treatment shown to have any benefit. The active ingredient is rosmarinic acid, which is an anti-inflammatory that can reverse some of the symptoms of ageing. This is part two of my interview about the interconnection between treating ciguatera fish poisoning and reversing the diseases of old age. We're actually writing a review now with a group here in, in biological sciences, Professor Brett Nealon, who is an ARC senior research professor here, who is also interested in environmental toxins. His main work is algae and cyanobacterial to- poisoning and particulate microcystins, which are also uh, environmental toxins, particularly leading to hepatotoxicity. At the same time, we're also writing another paper. Well, it's in French at the moment in the, with our collaborators, but we are hoping to publish these in, uh, in vivo animal models soon. And what we have shown actually is that there is an increased survival rate with mice exposed to rosmarinic acid compared to mice exposed to ciguatera poisoning alone. So at the same time, we see that there is an increased uh, survival of the neurons present in the brain with animals uh, treated with, with uh, rosmarinic acid compared to animals that are treated with ciguatera poisoning alone. At the same time, we also wanted to further investigate the mechanism of ciguatera poisoning and what other neuroprotective mechanisms of action does rosmarinic acid expose. Now, one aspect we're looking for is inflammation. In any system, there is a, particularly an infection, there are cells known as macrophages which mop up the, the, the infective pathogen. They do this by releasing cytokines, which actually target the exogenous pathogen, and then they, it breaks it up, and then the macrophage engulfs, engulfs it and basically eats it. The process is called the phagocytosis. So one aspect was, well, uh, inflammation is most likely to be involved in ciguatera poisoning. Can rosmarinic acid also act as an inflammatory agent? And we have shown this is true. We have shown that the rosmarinic acid can reduce microglia activation and therefore reduce the cytokine release, and therefore prevent and slow down inflammation occurring in the body due to ciguatera poisoning. And how much rosmarinic acid would you be able to work out if you were scaling it up to a human level from the mice studies that you're doing? Okay, so in our mouse studies, we use 0.05 milligrams per kilogram of rosmarinic acid. Now, in a human, in a typical human population where the average weight of a person ranges from 60 to 70 kilos, we are expecting to use about 3 milligrams of rosmarinic acid. You're estimating from the, the mice that it's around yeah. three and a half milligrams per 70 kilo person. Uh, that's right. It's possible that this amount can cross the, the blood-brain barrier, which means that this amount is actually bioavailable. The bioavailability is a main uh, problem when you're using natural compounds, but this, of course, if these natural active compounds are present, for example, in green tea, and you were drinking green tea, how much of that green tea can actually reach the brain? Even if these compounds are in a tablet or a capsule, how much of it will be able to escape first phase metabolism and reach the brain. The amount of 3.5 uh, milligrams of rosmarinic acid will be enough to actually enter the brain and to reduce some of the side effects by ciguatera if it was given as a tablet. Rosmarinic acid 
is available from some health food places online from you know rosemary and panilla and various herbs but it would seem that it's there's not very much rosemary acid in the herbs that's right and the problem comes is actually extraction of natural ingredients from the actual plant so it's likely that people with ciguatera couldn't go and just buy some herbal tablets from a health food shop and get enough rosemary acid not at the present stage but the actual plant in which rosemary acid is found it's a, the, the heliotropium is actually being used by the native islanders in, in, in the Pacific and, and, and particularly New Caledonia and the Caribbeans. And it has become part of the actual diet. I'd read about it being a bush food in Australia. That's correct. This particularly explains why the native indigenous populations, whether it's the aboriginals in Australia and the, the islanders, the island population, actually are not really initially affected a lot by the ciguatera poisoning. They, in the, these harsh conditions, the native population were able to survive under increased infection and, and, and environmental toxins, but of course they had a strong understanding of relation of the native ingredients present in native products that are present in the environment. They were able to modulate the, the diet based on what was around them. They had a strong understanding between disease and, and, and the protection. So do you know if Australian Aboriginals had to deal with ciguatera poisoning? Ciguatera was only present, it was present generally in the coastal areas, particularly at the, t- at the, at the time. However, it's only nowadays moving into inland, inland island populations. But in Australia, it generally remains the coastal areas, particularly inland in Australia, is not much uh, water bodies to allow the spread of algal blooms. And also, if we look at the epidemiological or geographical studies, we see actually there has been an increased rate in algal blooms occurring in the 20th century in Australia, which were not present maybe 100 or 200 years ago. And this is particularly related to the increase in global warming. So the rosemary acid that you're using would be basically sold by pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, well, uh, our rosemary acid is actually, uh, uh, it's 95% pure, but it comes from a, pharma- a pharmaceutical company called Sigma Aldrich. However, it's not yet for, uh, designed for human consumption. It's more for, for uh, pharmacological and medical research. So people who have ciguatera poisoning pretty much have to wait for the clinical trials to start on humans. That's correct, that's correct. How far in the future do you estimate that uh, might be? Our collaborators actually in uh, New Caledonia have actually patented this research. So they are hoping to actually develop products on the market ASAP. So they basically want to get there as quickly as possible. That's right. Because it's, it's the only product that can actually directly inhibit the ciguatera poisoning. And so ASAP could be in the next year or two? Yes, and there are some drug companies actually investing in the New Caledonia Research Group to develop an environmental research facility in New Caledonia, specifically focused on developing this product, the rosemary acid, for the treatment as an agent against ciguatera poisoning. Would you be doing any of the trials here, or would it all be in New Caledonia? Well, it's, all, it's all in New Caledonia at the moment. So we need to take a holiday. <laughs> uh, it, it, hopefully it will translate and move on to different facilities. But this is all related to awareness and, and, and the willingness of the government to actually fund this particular research. Now we see a lot of research aimed at cancer and cardiovascular disease, but hardly any research is being done to new generative diseases. It's actually one of the lowest. It's only now that they're increasing uh, uh, developing centers for neuroscience, but and then again, it's, it takes a while. Neurogenic diseases are really known as uh, uh, the silent epidemic these days. That's the best word to explain. Is there a chance that rosemarinic acid will also be effective against some other uh, neurodegenerative diseases? Yes, it's highly, it's highly probable also, particularly because of its anti-inflammatory and antioxidative effect. Uh, also, uh, rosemarinic acid has been shown to actually inhibit amyloid beta aggregation in, in, in vivo. Uh, 
what is amyloid beta? Amyloid beta is one of the main pathological hallmarks leading to the formation of the sinoplaques plaques in Alzheimer's disease. So if, if you can inhibit the aggregation of the amyloid to form plaques, it can, may also be useful for the, for the uh, at least for, as an adjunct therapy for, for, to slow down the progression of Alzheimer's disease. So rosemary acid could be effective in other things like Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases. And the NAD plus aspect of it seems that it could it also have an effect on aging. Yes. Rosemary acid is one of a group of polyphenols that can also increase NAD levels. Now, though it, ca- it cannot increase NAD levels higher than resveratrol or quercetin, it does have some impact uh, in, in vitro. It is possible that, therefore, that uh, rosemary acid can maintain intracellular NAD levels uh, at an optimal range to slow down the, the, the aging process. Rosemary acid, interesting, is also uh, found in some cosmetics as anti-aging, and this is particularly important since the UV damage, which is uh, very high in Australia, can lead to increase the skin damage, particularly in what we see these days. So rosemary acid can actually reduce formation and wrinkling and slow down the degeneration of skin cells due to the increased UV. Do you think the fact that rosemaric acid has all these extra abilities in, a, in addition to being useful to treat ciguatera poisoning might help you get the grants from the government? Oh, hopefully, we, we hope so as well. To what a point I would like to make today is that, that so these, these particular diseases are not new. The cancers, cardiovascular disease and neurogenerative diseases all would have existed like centuries ago. Now the native population did not have research facilities, they did not have synthetic drug chemistry, but yet they still were able to survive even amongst harsh conditions. And how did they do this? Well basically they used native natural compounds. They had a strong understanding of, of the benefits of products in nature. So if we look into nature for our medical research, we will have a stronger uh, and look at maintain our delta lifestyle, and uh, then we have a str- better advantage of combating these diseases that we face these days. That was Dr. Nadi Brady, who is a National Health and Medical Research Council postdoctoral early career research fellow, based at the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging, or SHEBA, at the Euroa Centre, at the Prince of Wales Hospital, under the School of Psychiatry and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of New South Wales. Information given in this show is not medical advice. Please consult your doctor before acting on any medical information. Listen next week for the final part of the interview. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and please rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, Radio On Demand and On The Go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information about this week's show.
Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads a free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the cost of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.